Amen. Well, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 28 tonight, if you have a Bible and you want to go there. There are so many things that we could say about the resurrection. There's so many sermons we could preach on the resurrection. There's not enough time in history to cover everything that we could say. There's a few things we could discuss. For example, that everything Jesus said about himself is proved true by the Father raising him from the dead. The Father said, yep, he is my son and everything he has said is true. We could point out that we no longer, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, have to live in fear of death. The fear of death is not a slavery that we have to that we have to be under anymore. There's a great way John Donne put it. He said, death, thou shalt die. Death got a hold of Jesus and it couldn't hold him. And those who are in Jesus, death will not hold them ultimately. We could discuss the fact that the bodies that God gave us, he doesn't mean to do away with. These bodies that are getting older every year, that are falling apart, he means to redeem and fulfill. And we get this wonderful glimpse of what the resurrection body will be like in the resurrection body of Jesus. We could talk about the fact that there is nothing that we do as Christians, that we do in faith and trust and offer that to him. Nothing we do will be lost. Everything that we do as we do it unto him will matter forever to him. Those are just some of the things that we could discuss about the resurrection. But tonight I want to look at something that Matthew emphasizes. And what Matthew emphasizes, I think, is Jesus' school of life. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came and initiated and invited people into his school of living. It's not a school. It's not the school of how to go to heaven when you die. It's a school of living. It's a school learning from the master class, from the master himself, on living wisely and well now and forever. Jesus has opened that master class. And he is the master of all of life. And I want to stress here, he's not the master of religious life. He's the master of all of life. He created it all. He's interested in it all. He knows about it all. And he can teach us about it all. So it's about all of life, not just about religious life. The school is not for the elite, the gifted, the connected. It's for nobodies. It's for the burned out. It's for burdened people. People who feel in their bones that things are not right. He is the master teacher. He's not cocky. He's not domineering. He doesn't blame you or, or get on to you when we make mistakes. He doesn't set impossible tasks. He's meek, as he says in Matthew chapter 11, and lowly in heart. He's generous and helpful. He persistently sets incredibly high goals, but he's with us. He comes close to us to help us achieve what he sets for us all along the way. Now, Jesus' death broke the disciples' heart because they thought, well, it was too good to be true. What he was talking about was too good to be true. He's too good to be true. 
But the resurrection teaches us that it's too good not to be true. And that Jesus' school of life is open now and forever, and nothing can shut that school. And he's inviting all of us to it. So I want to start in Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards quaked from fear of him and became like dead men. The angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. For he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Matthew and really all the gospel writers want us to notice the fact that the disciples all fled. But the women were very faithful. Mary Magdalene is there at the cross. She's there at the tomb. She's here when the resurrection takes place. I think she's probably the woman earlier in Matthew that anointed Jesus' head with precious ointment because she was preparing him for his burial. These women are the first witnesses to the resurrection and the first messengers of the resurrection uh, to the rest of the disciples. And Matthew's frontlining that and wanting us to notice that. And notice what the angel says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The temple guards were as dead men. They were terrified. They were lying on the ground catatonic. The women were afraid. But the angel's message is, do not be afraid. Fear is the enemy of receptivity. Anxiety hinders learning. The angel wants to banish their fear so that they can hear and they can receive and they can act on what the angel has for them to do. He is not here. I love that line. Do you ever go to somebody's house, you're looking for him before the days of cell phones, before you knew when they were there? Is my friend here? No, he's not here. They were looking for him. They saw his body go in the tomb. He's not here. And notice the angel doesn't say his body's not here. It's he himself. He's not here. He's left. He's been raised. Jesus told his disciples this repeatedly. If you pay attention in the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly says, now, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. And repeatedly, the disciples don't get what Jesus has said. But he says, the angel says, just as he said, he has been raised. Death had its way with him. It did its worst. But death has been stripped of its proud power. It cannot hold him any longer. Death has died because it tried to consume the wrong person. And death is now disabled and ultimately will be done away with. He has been raised, Jesus, never to die again. Now the angel rolled the stone away. Why? He didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. Jesus didn't need that assistance. Later, Jesus will appear to the disciples behind locked doors. He will come and go at will. Jesus' indestructible life didn't need the assistance of an angel to remove a little bit of rock to let him out. 
Why did the angel roll the rock, rock away? He rolled it away to let the women in. To let them come in and see. Because this was important. He rolled the stone away and he said, ladies, come on in, take a look. I want you to see what's going on. He's not here. We know the other gospel writers tell us that his grave clothes are there as if poof, he was gone from them. Come and see, the angel says, because faith is not opposed to evidence. I want you to see, I want you to see that this tomb that you saw closed, that you just now saw opened, that it's empty. And I want you to have that faith then to go and tell the rest of the disciples. Then the angel sat down. Now, I have no idea why he sat down. I don't know. I kind of think he sat down and laughed. Because the work is done. Jesus has accomplished what he had to do. And I, I would like to think he sat down and laughed when he said, fear not. And laughed when he said, come in and see that this is an empty tomb. Tell his disciples he is risen. That is the gospel in a nutshell. How do you tell the gospel in a nutshell? There's a lot of ways to do it. But one is to say that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, never to die again. If you ever want to tell the gospel in brief, that's it. Jesus Christ who was crucified, has been raised from the dead, never to die again. Go to Galilee, because he will meet you there. Tell my disciples to meet me there in Galilee. Now, I love this part. The women have to, or the women go and tell the disciples, and the disciples have to listen to them. And they have to go to Galilee. Galilee is 100 miles from Jerusalem. Back in those days, they would walk about 20 miles a day. So it took these guys five days musing on what the women had said, musing on what they had done, how they had failed. All along the way, they had to listen to a report of his resurrection and they had to take action and walk out their faith to go and meet him in Galilee. What were they thinking along the way? What did they anticipate he would say when they got there? Matthew 28, 8. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and report to my brothers to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Now, I love this appearance because in some ways it's redundant. Jesus doesn't add any content. But they got to see Jesus. They got to encounter him. They got to see him, and it was like a double testimony. They saw the empty tomb, and then they got to see him himself. And he says, hi. I mean, greetings is the fancy way we put it, but he just said, hi. It's such a simple greeting to these women that he knew so well. And they took hold of his feet. Jesus was no disembodied spirit. He was no apparition. They grabbed his feet. And it says they worshiped him. Jesus is God. He is both man and God. And once again, what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. And here's the thing about Jesus' words, Jesus' commands. Human commands tell you to do something and don't give you the resources to do it. His commands are energizing. His command, ladies, do not fear, banishes fear. Amen? His word has that power. Jesus' commands has that engracing energy. Tell my brothers. 
This is interesting. The disciples are called disciples all through here. But Jesus says, tell my brothers, tell my brothers that you have seen me. They will see me. Tell them to go ahead and meet me. Walk. Take those five days to walk there and see me. And what's interesting about this passage is all through this section, see or behold or some kind of word for beholding Jesus is repeated all throughout like a drumbeat. Now we have a second scene starting in Matthew 11. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and took counsel together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this is heard before the governor, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. The guards here are not not Roman guards. They're probably the temple guards, the guards that uh, the Sanhedrin had at their disposal. And they saw what the women saw. They saw the angel descend. They saw or beheld or experienced the earthquake. They saw the tomb, uh, the, the stone before the tomb rolled away. They too are eyewitnesses, but notice what they do. They go and tell it, and then they agree to lie about what they saw. The elders, it says, took counsel together. And if you have your ear attuned to scripture, it sounds an awful lot like Psalm 2, where it says the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, trying to throw off God's chosen leader. This is terribly ominous because this is the people of God now in company with the rebel kings of the earth. The leaders of the people of God taking counsel together. How can we suppress what we know to be true? How can we suppress that? It says they gave them a large sum of money. And that's worth noting as well. Jesus has taught a lot about money in the Gospel of Matthew. He's given many warnings about money. He says it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He drives out those in the temple who use the temple as a place of profit. And here we see money and its power. Money bought off Judas to betray the Lord. And now money is used to oppose the message of Jesus' resurrection. Money is being used to suppress the truth. And it's very interesting that it says they did as they were instructed. It says, it's, it says they did as they were taught. Why taught? Well, I think that there's this contrast being drawn between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples beholden to money and state power and other things. They were willing for the sake of large sums of money to suppress what they knew to be true. But the disciples are called to give witness and word and proclaim what they know to be true, not for money, not for power. And I think this story is in here because Matthew and Jesus and God wants us to know, you know what, guys? Opposition, been there from the beginning. It's no big deal. Jesus was opposed. He was opposed unto death. God raised him from the dead. Nothing can stop this message from going forth. There will always be opposition. Expect it. Don't sweat it. This gospel cannot be contained. And finally, the section we're so familiar with, starting in 16. 
But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They went to the mountain that he had appointed. Mountains in scripture are significant. Mountains in Matthew are significant. When you think mountain and the people of God, your mind should go back and forth to all those significant episodes that took place on mountains. Just to mention a few. Abraham offering up his son on a mountain, but God providing a lamb in his stead. Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to his people. Mount Zion, which the nations, it says in Isaiah, were going to flow to, to learn the teaching of God. The mountain that Ezekiel sees in, in his, his prophecy, in which there's this glorious future temple, and a little trickle flows from that temple and becomes a torrent that blesses all the nations with living water. All of those mountains in Scripture and more are gathered up in this moment. Notice again, it says, again, they saw him. Paul actually tells us that about 500 people saw Jesus in Galilee. And that Paul says you can go and interview some of those people who are still alive to hear about the eyewitness testimony they bear to him being raised from the dead. The disciples worship him, just like the women. This is our second moment of worship of the risen Jesus. They've responded to the testimony that they heard from the women. They've walked in faith and they see him and worship him when they see him. But notice that it says, but some doubted. I love this. I think it shows the disciples Matthew's humility. It doesn't sort of say, oh, they never doubted. They were so sure. And, you know, they saw Jesus and they were all great. It says they worshiped. But, you know, some weren't sure what was going on exactly. Some had some questions. They report their doubts. I think that's incredibly humble. And Jesus is not troubled by it. He doesn't berate them and say, now, guys, I'm here. You know, some of you are doubting. What's your problem? They worship. He sees the doubt. That's okay. That should encourage us. Doubt is often mixed with faith. Read the Psalms. Jesus has a response, but it's not the response of berating. He doesn't chew them out. He gives them a mission. He says, I have a task for you. Trusting action is often the way to deal with doubt. Trusting action, doing what Jesus teaches us to do, is often the way to deal with doubt. Walk in faith where he has promised to meet you, and you will see him. Now, this text has four alls. It's, it's full of these alls. It's this comprehensive text. The first is all authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying that he is the king promised in David's line that would receive authority over all nations. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that Daniel saw. Daniel saw this vision, one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days and all authority was given to him. He's saying, I am the authorized authority, the highest authority on earth, and I'm commanding you. He says, go to all nations. 
And this is the fulfillment of all the way back to the call of Abraham. Abraham, you follow me and through your descendants, I will bless all nations. It could go back even further to Adam and Eve being called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is interested in the whole earth, every nation, every tribe. He says, do keep, teach them to keep all that I have commanded you. This is the third all. They are to put everything that Jesus taught into action. Jesus' teaching, his school of life, is the plan for the good life. He is living, walking, talking Torah. And he says, guys, all this that I've taught you all these three years, go and put all of it into practice. Because I'm embracing all nations to live in it and do it. And finally, he says, I am with you always. Matthew opens his gospel with the promise and the prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us. And now he ends his gospel with Jesus' words to his disciples that he will be with us in our mission of obedience to him and fulfilling his commands. Finally, there's one imperative and three modifiers. Sorry, that's a little grammar nerdy, but the grammar of this section of scripture has one command with three modifying participles, if you really want the technical term. The one command is make disciples. And going and baptizing and teaching are all modifiers of that one command. Go make disciples. Go enroll fellow students in my school of life that you have been a part of and is now continuing. Jesus is... Jesus has opened the school of life, he's taught these men, and now he's continuing the school of life and in, in calling them to enroll other students in that school of life. He says go, or going. They're not to be stationary. Adam and Eve in the beginning were to fill all the earth. We're to go everywhere. We're to go to every corner of the planet. It's not disconnected from Life. It's not cloistered in a classroom. It's not cloistered in a church. It's going out into all aspects of life. And just be my students of life there and invite others into that school. Baptizing. Jesus doesn't say this because he wants them to get people wet and say some words over them. He's enrolling them in his school of life. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Immerse them into the life that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Baptism, Jesus is teaching here, is not a mere sign, but it is introduction and welcome and connection with the very life of God. Trusting attachment to Jesus in faith, energizing and invigorating help from the Holy Spirit and welcome as a child into the Father's house is what Jesus is talking about. That is what he is inviting them into, what he's calling his disciples to go and immerse people in, is insertion into the divine life. And finally, teaching. And I love this. As I said, the disciples are not called apostles in this section of scripture. They don't have fancy terms for leadership. They're just called students. Students and brothers, learners, apprentices, trainees. That's what they are, and that's what we are, and that's what we're called to invite other people to become. The subject is Jesus and his teaching. It's learning from him and with his other students how to do the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he is the best teacher ever. We're all learning, all of us, from the newest Christian to the oldest Christian, and we won't stop learning this side of death. There's a great story about the Spanish cellist Pablo Casals. In 1955, they made a short documentary about a one day in his life, and they followed him around. And the interviewer at the end of it said, you practice for four to five hours a day still, and you're 80 years old. Why do you do that? And he said, I think I'm still making progress. That should be our attitude as students of Jesus, that we are constantly learning, that we have more to learn, and the lessons will never stop in this life or the next. Amen? Amen. So just as I wrap up, just an observation. There's a lot of guys going around that are really popular, like Jordan Peterson. I don't know, maybe you've not heard of him, but a lot of people have heard of Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson has a lot of decent and wise things to say. He's very appealing to a lot of people. And I think he's appealing because he's talking about all of life. Notice I said Jesus opens this school of life. Peterson is talking about everything, money, relationships. He talks about all kinds of things. He's not just talking about specialized religious material. And we should be thankful for any source of wisdom that's out there that people are receiving from. But, but, I wonder if the church has failed to hold up Jesus as the true master of all of living in every aspect. Money, relationships, marriage, art, work, you name it. He knows it. He's the master of it. Thank goodness for wisdom that comes from elsewhere, but he is the supreme teacher. And may the church reclaim him as the master teacher of life. Amen. So Jesus' school for living is open and it's open forever. Death could not close the school. We learn from him how to live and die and live forever. Everybody's welcome. Doubt, fear and failure are not a hindrance to him being a teacher in that school. Well-moneyed religions and powerful states cannot stop this school. It is fully supported and invested in by the best teacher the universe has ever known. It is the most authorized activity you can do, stamped with approval by the highest authority there is. All of life is his classroom. It's a homeschool in the house of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his connection to his students is better than Zoom, is better than one-on-one, it's better than any connection with any student ever. This is one aspect of the good news that Jesus has raised from the dead because his school of life is open and it is welcome to all who will take it. Amen? We close with this scripture. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Pray with me. Jesus, you are the Son of the Father, the Word of the Father, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, I thank you for what we've discussed tonight, that you are the master teacher. And you have invited each one of us 
to take the yoke of your teaching and share that yoke with you. And you have promised to be our very present helper and teacher. Jesus, we thank you that you know about any subject we could wonder about. You know about any situation we could find ourselves in. And we ask that you would come into all those aspects of our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, into all those aspects of our lives and those conundrums and those situations that we've never maybe even imagined inviting you in and being our teacher there. Lord, you are the master teacher. And uh, we, we invite you in and we thank you for that, this celebration of your resurrection. Amen. Amen.